I'm so thankful today for musicians. Um, uh, the way in which uh, you allow the Word of God to just soar, and thank you, uh, Rosemary and Janie and Kevin. Thankful today for our students who over these next couple weeks are going to be preparing to return to school, for teachers and school administrators, college officials, everybody who's sort of gearing up for their return. And so we give thanks for them and look forward to the many different opportunities that are going to be before you and uh, before all of our students. Give thanks to God for Kirsten and Kendall and for the decision you've made to, to be baptized today. There's a lot of reasons to give thanks in this world, right? And we are just so very thankful to be in this very place. We pray with me? Lord God, thank You for being a good and gracious God and for bringing us into this house of worship with sisters and brothers around this world, the vast majority of whom we will never know, and yet together we cling to Your Word. And we know that, that by Your promise we will be filled with, with truth, with grace, with light, and for that we give You thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last two weeks, Pastor Laura and I have been focusing on the image of a, of a banquet. Two weeks ago, it was King Herod's banquet, if, if you might remember. For those of you who were a, a part of that worship service, he threw a banquet for himself. It was his birthday, so he threw a gigantic, enormous birthday party for himself and ended up chopping off the head of John the Baptist as a gift to his wife. What a gathering, right? Last week, Pastor Laura took a gentler approach to this idea of a banquet when Jesus uh, was able to feed 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. It was a lovely day. They had all that they needed, even though they showed up that morning, assuming that they would not have enough at all. Well, this week and for the two Sundays following, we're going to continue in that idea of a, of a banquet. Um, the ways in which these banquet stories help us to to. to to really dive deeply into a, a powerful lesson that God is sharing with us about scarcity and abundance, which is compelling, I think, because, well, this world is thirsty right now, don't you think? I mean, depleted, tired, exhausted. It's been a long 19 months, and and even on Friday night, I'm an Olympics guy. I love the Olympics. I remember those days back in my youth, my, my kid, when our whole family would gather around and watch people like, Olga Corbett. Do you remember that? That tells you how old I am. And Nadia Comaneci and Mark Spitz and Flojo and Carl Lewis, just all those names that became part of our family narrative, it seems. And now we're eager to watch again these next several days or a couple of weeks on the Olympics. But even on Friday night at the opening ceremonies, when we were ready to watch that once every four years gathering of, of the world's greatest athletes and cheering crowds, imagining at least for a moment that, yeah, maybe this, maybe peace is possible in this world. Even then on Friday night, the Olympic Stadium seats 63,000 people, but was empty because of COVID, because of the pandemic. It was sort of depressing and discouraging at one level. It was as if the world was saying in one voice, we're tired, tired. So what might Scripture have to say in times like these? Well, Kevin, I'm glad you asked. Thank you, because I'd like to share with you, because that's what these banquet stories are so helpful. So open with me today, if you will, to your first reading, and I did not bring a Bible with me right up here, so I'm hoping, yes, there is one right here. 
This first reading is from 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a, it's a passage I've never preached on or taught about, and it's been a lovely passage, a very interesting passage that I'd invite you to dive a little bit more de- deeply into with me today. We're going to begin at um, verse 38. It's a story about the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, that was his predecessor, that was his mentor, but Elisha, whose call was to speak of the Word of God to the people of, of Israel, the people in his community. That's what prophets do, Right? Normally, you don't always like what prophets have to say. They say things that sort of jar you, that interrupt you, that, um, that maybe force you to think in entirely different ways if you're willing to listen. But that was the call of the prophet. Elijah, uh, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were all at one point sort of run out of town because of what they had to say. That happens with modern-day prophets too, like Martin Luther King or, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Abraham Heschel. I mean, so many folks who essentially in their own sort of way, in their own prophet making or, 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 or call were or, or run out of town. Well, Elisha was a prophet whose, whose, whose call was to speak to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the very first verse that we, we encounter today, verse 38, gives us a ton of context. So, let's take a look at it if, uh, if we will. Elisha returned to Gilgal, which is that region in that northern kingdom of Israel, and there was a famine in the land, famine in the region. Now, that's not a surprise because throughout Elisha's ministry, there was a great famine in the land, a drought, crops that would die on the vine, hunger everywhere. It was a rather depressing time, to be quite honest. And, and so, most of the stories in this part of Second Kings and the career of Elisha, so many of those stories deal with the famine in the land, people who were hungry, people were thirsty, there was great scarcity. And so, in this story, people are following Elisha around, and, and they're asking, where is God in the midst of all of this scarcity? Where is God in all of this? Have you ever asked that question? Of course you have. We, we all have. So, now skip to verse 42. Then we get to sort of figure out exactly what's, what's happening. A man came from Baal Shalishah. He's bringing Elisha something. He's bringing him 20 loaves of barley and some heads of new grain. Now, I want you to focus in on that word, Baal Shalisha. I sure hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Is that right, Mitch? God bless you. I was a little nervous about that, but yes. So, focus in on that word, Baal Shalisha, and say it with me. Baal Shalisha. It's very important. Um, Shalisha is only mentioned one other time in the Bible when it was just Shalisha, and it was widely known to be that part of Israel that produced the first harvests. Because of its unique climate, produce and grain ripen quicker in Shalisha. Now, why does that matter? Well, in those days, uh, no matter for the most part, no matter what religion you were part of, certainly the people of Israel, but other religions too, they had this common practice to bring to the house of worship the first fruits of your harvest as an offering to your God. Uh, and so, what's interesting in Shalisha is because their fruits, their harvest, their produce, grain, ripen quicker than anybody else's, they were always the first to show up with their thank offering, sort of like Bill Seyfried, always the first one here. He's not here today because he's at the beach, and I hope he's um, listening to us. But I, you, you can, you, you mark this. You try to show up next week um, before Bill Schaefer. You won't do it. I, I don't know if he spends a night on Saturday night or what, <laughs> but he's always the first one here. Shalisha. But you may have noticed that the town's name has changed from Shalisha to Baal Shalisha, which is a clue that the town um, has now become wrapped up in this worship of Baal. 
That's a weird word, isn't it? B-A-A-L, and yet that's how you would say Baal. It was a, it's, a, it's a god that was part of this sort of Baal religion. It was a group of, uh, I mean, the, the Canaanites for the most part, uh, part were Baalists, and they would worship Baal, and, um, which was um, among 200 different gods in that, in that religion of which Baal was the most significant. And here's the deal. People who practiced that religion uh, had to appease their gods, including Baal, all the time, mainly through sacrifice. Now, the, the gift of grain sacrifice, that's one thing, but oftentimes the sacrifice also had to include something of greater sacrifice. Sometimes that sacrifice was of a person, even of your first child, if you can imagine that. And if they didn't, they worried that the gods would retaliate, and so they always lived in fear. It was a brutal religion. And obviously very different than the one practiced by the people of Israel. So, when the story tells us that a man from Baal Shalishah shows up, well, you can rest assured that the people of Israel that day, those who were there with Elisha that day, you can rest assured that they had already judged him. I mean, here was a pagan. They didn't know anything about him, really, except that that's where he came from. They looked at him. They could, they could tell that he wasn't one of them. And so they judged him. They placed all kinds of layers of judgment upon him. He's, he, he's a pagan. He's an outsider. He's a child killer. He's a foreigner. You know how that happens. They didn't give him a chance. He was labeled. He was judged, maybe pitied, maybe scoffed at, certainly spit upon, ignored, whatever. As it turns out, every society since the beginning of time has has had a history, has had a story of, of deep prejudice towards the other. And that was certainly the case here in, in this situation among these Israelites towards the Canaanites, which includes this, quote, man from Baal Shalishah. You get the picture? Well, that's what's happening when he shows up. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you notice, this man, this hated man, he comes up bearing gifts, oddly enough. I mean, come on, what does he have to offer? He's a nobody, right? So why is he showing up with, with stuff? I mean, he doesn't have anything to give, and yet he does because this man who has nothing to give, this hated man, he shows up with 20 loaves of bread and some corn, and he gives it to Elisha during a time, don't forget, of a famine in the land. And Elisha, through the power of God, turned that gift into a meal, turned it into a banquet for a hundred people. Here's the point. This man gave when nobody thought they had anything to give. And so, what can we learn? Well, several things, of course, but I'd like to pull out a few. One is this. Everybody has something to give. Don't be fooled. Don't be mistaken. That's you. That's me. That's your neighbor. That's everyone has something to give. And that something no matter what, it is when given with love and faithfulness and thanksgiving, God can turn that meager something into something of great abundance for the sake of the world. Second, please, friends, don't be surprised by what the outsider can teach us. It's happened throughout history and in every society. When the person who you never imagined would be someone who we can learn from, who, who might have a, an element of truth or a light within them, within their voice, within their prophetic proclamation, or simply within their story, who knows that it's interesting how that outsider is the one who becomes the strongest prophet for the community, 
Even in our own history, Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, by all means, nobody wanted to listen to them, but they were two of the most significant prophets of the 19th century in American history. But even that was true of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he was ridiculed by the political elite, especially in the early days of, of, his, of his life. What, what newspapers across the country, especially when he decided to run for public office, they called him, quote, a poor, moderate lawyer from the hollers of Kentucky. What does he have to offer? The same was true of this man from Baal Shali Shah. When he shows up, they laugh. What has he got? Listen. The wise one. The wise one is the one who dares to listen by setting aside pride and assumptions in order to listen. We would be wise to do the same. Finally, something else we can learn. Did you notice that everyone that day, everyone, including Alicia himself, everybody who showed up that day, they were thirsty. Physically, sure, absolutely. There was a famine in the land, a drought in the land. They were thirsty, but they were thirsty emotionally and spiritually as well. You know they were. I mean, it's been a long famine, and it, and it didn't appear that there was an end in sight. The result, the people who showed up surrounding Elisha that day, waiting to hear from him, uh, they were loaded with hopelessness, sleeplessness, loneliness, resentment, irritability, insecurity, symptoms of a deep dryness within. They were thirsty. Which begs a question, what will quench the thirst of those who show up thirsty in the time of Elisha or even now? What will quench that thirst? Giving them food or water? Sure, for a time, but only for a time. Only for a, a momentary, uh, uh, only for a small amount of time will their, will their thirst be satisfied. But it's so much more than that, right? I mean, you know, don't you, that, that you can stand deep and uh, uh, chest deep in the, in the Yadkin River and still die of thirst, right? I mean, because, because why? Uh, until you scoop and until you swallow <laughs> The water does your system absolutely no good. That's why Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, you remember this story, the Samaritan woman who showed up at the well in the heat of the day, she was thirsty, and she needed some water, and so she shows up at this well, and Jesus says, sure, you can get some water in that well, but do you want to satisfy your real thirst? Then come to me, for I am the water of life, Jesus says. Uh, so drink of that water. Come to that banquet. Be filled with that nourishment. Be centered in that message, especially if today you came thirsty or depleted or tired because God wants to fill you with a promise. And that promise begins with God's unmeasurable love for you and for me. A love, a love that's not earned or deserved, but given graciously freely given. Since the very first day of creation when the Ruach, the breath of God, breathed over the, the waters of the deep and brought life, even to when Jesus dies on a cross, throughout is this great gift of love. St. Paul says this, I pray. Gretchen read it so beautifully a moment ago. I pray, St. Paul, wrote to these Ephesians, but also to you. 
I pray that you, being rooted in that love, that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, a love that will surpass all of your knowledge and all of your understanding, a love that is able to do immeasurably more than you will ever be able to ask or imagine how, why, through the power of God, through God's power that works within you. In fact, the original language says that the power of God that is already working within you, through you, around you, above you, with you. The power of God's love. Why? For the sake of this generation and for all generations to come forever and ever. Amen. Listen, today and every time you come to worship, every time you dare to open pages of Scripture, every time you sing the songs of Zion, what you are invited to do is to drink from that jug of water. If you're thirsty, drink from that jug of water. That will give you life. Amen. Mm -hmm.